Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Welcome back to Knocked Up. We're so excited to be back for another season of Knocked Up. As always, I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 41-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. And I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, a CREI certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. We've got some really exciting episodes for you this season, and they'll be going live every second Monday. Starting today with the latest advice on the COVID vaccine with expert GP, Dr. Priya Alexander. In our next episode, we'll introduce you to Lover's Lubricants, using Dr. Raylia's medical knowledge to give you the best pleasure ever. Other episodes include finding the perfect prenatal supplement with dietitian Wendy Fideli, answering your questions about women's health and fertility, and the latest innovations in weight loss with Dr. Catherine Backus. Terrific. We hope you enjoy this next season. We've taken a little bit of time out to recharge, reinvigorate, um, get used to a few new things in this post-COVID world, but we are super, super, super excited to be back. Today, we welcome back Dr. Priya Alexander. Priya is a practicing GP based in Melbourne and holds a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery from Adelaide University. She's a member of the FRACGP and works as a medical educator training GPs. Dr. Priya specialises in preventative health, general medicine, sexual health, mental health, women's medicine, and shares her expertise and passion on Instagram and her blog, The Wholesome Doctor. Welcome back to Knocked Up. Our most requested topic of late is the impact of the COVID vaccine on fertility and during pregnancy. Raylia and Priya from The Wholesome Doctor. Welcome, Priya. Thank you, guys. These two doctors have done a couple of brilliant IG lives on the COVID vaccine that you can still find on Priya's Instagram page. And as the topic continues to be such a big source of questions for our listeners, we thought it was time to get into the detail with this episode of Knocked Up. We're going to focus on the specifics around fertility and pregnancy, but we'll begin with some of your general questions around the vaccine. And a big one to start with, the vaccine technology is so new how do we know it's safe? That's a very interesting question that I'm getting probably a thousand times a day, Raylia. I don't know if you agree with me. Definitely. People are concerned about how quickly these vaccines have been developed. But I think we need to reframe slightly how amazing it actually is that we have had these vaccines developed so quickly that are safe, that are effective that are really good at reducing your risk of dying from COVID-19, being hospitalised with it, even getting it, really good at all those things. But the thing I say to people is this, two things. Number one is we have literally thrown the world's resources at this. The world scientists, labs, researchers, everything has been thrown at this because you have a lethal pandemic sweeping the globe with people dying. 
So we've thrown everything at this, which has led to us having more resources, which leads to quicker outcomes. The second important thing, though, is no corners have been cut here. And that's the perception, Raylia. I think you'll probably agree with me. The perception is, well, if it's so quick, corners must have been cut. No, all the normal safety checks have still been done. No corners have been cut. And we know these vaccines are safe. They've had all the normal safety tests, clinical trials have all still happened. And not only that, Priya, but also we've now had literally billions of people vaccinated around the world. So we have in addition to the normal checks and balances, we also have powerful observational data. Yes. So those things together are really important in terms of relaying fears about how quickly this previously non-existent treatment has been developed. The other thing that I would also say is it's like a brand new recording artist Um, coming out with an amazing track Um, but the technology that underpins that yes is something that's been in development for a really really long time and the way that this vaccine works ultimately at a cellular level is the same way that other vaccines work there are some novel delivery systems here but the way the vaccine works is the same way that all vaccines work Um, in that it is a lesson for the immune system with a kind of less worrying stimulus than COVID itself that teaches the body how to fight COVID. It's the instructions. It's the amazingness that says to the immune system, prep the body for battle. And that that technology, as Raylia is saying, has existed for ages. That part of it isn't new. But can we just really focus on the fact what Raylia has said? We've had nearly over 6 billion people, billion People around the world have these vaccines. And we're talking about, you know, since they were developed, introduced, which is months and months and months ago, beginning of the year. So, yes, you've got the normal safety checks, you've got the normal clinical trials that have occurred, and now you've got billions of people. And we're not getting surprising stuff pop up. We now know what we're dealing with, and I'm sure we'll touch on that. But, you know, a lot of people really need to take comfort from the fact that this is not an experiment. This is more than 6 billion people, and and we're one of them. We've heard a bit about the mRNA vaccine. For those of us that aren't in scientists, what is the difference between mRNA and DNA? And can mRNA change my DNA? I'm sure Raylia, she might be kind of more in the know in terms of answering about the difference because you might be more at the cellular level than me, I suspect you are. But I think there's this misconception because they sound similar that they are hence related. And what I say to patients is the vaccine contents don't even go near the nucleus, Geordie. The, you know, the DNA of your cell, that beautiful amazingness that tells you who you are, is locked away in the nucleus and the vaccine contents never get there. It's completely protected. So there's no way these things can alter your DNA. It's a complete myth. The way I kind of explain to patients when they want to know more, I guess, about what mRNA is, is if you think of DNA as the roadmap of what makes us uniquely ourselves, and that, as Priya said, that's wrapped up in a special part of the cell called the nucleus, what mRNAs are when we make them ourselves not when they're given in a vaccine, when we ourselves make native mRNA in our body, uh, when we take little copies of little areas of our DNA, and this happens in the nucleus, and then those areas 
of DNA that it's like a photocopy of that area in reverse is called mRNA or messenger RNA. And that is then packaged out and sent from the nucleus, which is like the mothership of the cell, into little factory areas of the cell in the cytoplasm, which is like the cellular machinery that makes the cell tick, called the ribosomes. And the ribosomes read the mRNA instructions and make proteins, which are coded in those mRNA instructions. So what the vaccine is doing is it's giving you already made mRNA, sending it to the factories in the outer layers of the cell, not in, not in the DNA, not in the nucleus. And they're using our own cells to make proteins to educate our immune system. So while that mRNA in the vaccine is gone from your body in a flash, your cells have made these proteins, which our immune system can then use as kind of practice um, against fighting COVID. Can I just say I had a flashback to medical school when you were talking then? I just had some like creepy feeling where I got a slight chest tightness and I was like, I feel like I'm in a lecture. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it was so brilliant, but you're right. It is, it, isn't it amazing? It's literally giving your body the instructions to prime the immune system. And you're right. Can we just say that to everyone? The vaccine contents do not hang around in the body endlessly. Mm. They're gone. Yeah, and, and that's why I think a lot of people worry about, you know, well, what about in five years? What yes. about in 10 years? What do we not know? It, it's kind of an irrational worry because there's nothing in the body left of the vaccine after even a couple of weeks. So there's no real vaccine priming problem. The proteins that are kind of initially produced have broken down and gone away as well. It's just that our immune system have these cells um, B cells and T cells, which have these amazing memory systems. It's amazing that once they've seen something that's foreign, they learn how to fight it yeah. and they can call on that memory if they see it again or if they see something like it. And it's almost like we've taken away the, the virulence or the disease-causing properties of COVID. None of that's involved in the vaccine, but we've kind of shown the body one of the COVID's secret weapons of causing trouble. Yeah. And we've let the body have a practice fight against that before it's actually seen the virus. And that way, if it encounters the real deal, it's not naive to it. Yeah. It's seen something like it before and it has greater superpowers of fighting the disease. So the vaccine, just like any vaccine, doesn't stop you from being exposed to COVID. Um, it doesn't actually stop you from being infected with COVID. It does often stop you from getting enough viral replication when you are infected to infect another person because your body nips it in the bud. And in the same way, it stops you getting really, really sick most of the time. And just like any medical treatment, it's not 100% perfect. There will be some people who have been vaccinated who don't respond to the vaccine or who don't mount enough of a response to protect them 100%. And there will be very small numbers of people who still get very sick having had the vaccine, especially if they have serious underlying conditions that predispose them to illness with or without it. But what we've seen in the ICU context and in the hospitalised context of, of people both here in Australia and also overseas is that the vast majority of people who run into trouble with COVID are the unvaccinated. Really important to just, you know, the, the 
really basics of this is these vaccines prep your immune system and if your body does encounter it, like you say, Aurelia, it significantly, like over 90% after two doses, reduces your risk of being on a ventilator and dying, and that is amazing. So nine out of ten people will be okay. Um, and one, you know, like, like Raylia is saying, these vaccines are not 100% effective, like a seatbelt or a helmet are not. Um, exactly the same, but you still wear the helmet and you still wear the seatbelt. Claire, I've got one for you. The best advice that we're being given when you're undecided about getting the vaccine is to speak with your GP. In that appointment with your GP, what, what would the GP discuss with you to help you make that decision? That's a really good question. What what should people expect? So when people come in going, Priya, I want to know my options, because what we need to remember is that we've now got Pfizer, which is um, one of the mRNA vaccines, and Moderna is rolling out through pharmacies as we speak. We've not now got two mRNA vaccines, and those are the ones that the ATAGI, um, which is this group of experts, public health experts, infectious diseases experts, they came out and said, look, we'd prefer people under 60 to have these ones due to side effect profiles. But having said that, whilst they might be preferred and there's more stock of them, people are still having to wait quite a period of time to get them. And so people are coming to me and going, Priya, you know, our numbers are in the 700s at the moment. I'm nervous. I'm nervous about giving this to my kids. I'm nervous about giving this to my mother. I'm nervous because I'm planning a pregnancy, which I'm sure we'll get to. And so I then have the conversation with them, which is, yes, you've got Moderna and Pfizer there, but you're not going to get those appointments till December. Your, your option at the moment is AstraZeneca. And that is a brilliant, bloody good vaccine that I have had and would have again in a heartbeat to be clear to everyone. But the discussion I have, Geordie, to answer your question, sorry, because I've gone all round about here, <laughs> is I say to people, first off, why do you want to get vaccinated? Why are you here? What's your driver? And for some people, it's I'm scared of COVID. For many, it's I want to protect the people around me. I don't want to take this home and kill anyone. For lots of people, it's I just want to get the stats up and reopen. I want to be part of that 80%. Um, and for lots of young people, actually, interestingly, I have people going, I just have to do the right thing by the community. I know I'm low risk, but I have to do the right thing by the community. So I find out what people's drivers are, and then I go through their options with them. And Geordie, it's a discussion about the vaccines, the three that are currently available, the different side effect profiles, what your risk of things like myocarditis really is with the mRNA vaccines. And I reiterate on this podcast and to patients everywhere, it's actually much higher with COVID itself you know, four to six times more likely to get that inflammation of heart muscle that we've seen in the media. If you get COVID, then you're, you're going to get with the vaccine. So the vaccine is still safer. I talk about that really rare immune-mediated clotting disorder with AstraZeneca, which, again, the risk of that and dying from it in Australia is one in a million, more likely to die from a lightning strike. It's two in a million. So the chat I have, as you can tell, is long, and it's filled with risk counselling, benefit counselling and I say to the patient you have got a set of scales you know what's important to you you know how how much you want to travel and cross a state border when you can how much you might want to dine out at a restaurant how important it is to you to hold your niece or nephew who's a newborn or hug your grandparent and know you've reduced your risk of harming them you need to put those things on a scale and make a decision and for some it will be look, I'll get AstraZeneca today. For others, it might be, I'll wait for Moderna, I'll wait for Pfizer, or I need to think about this, Priya, I'll come and see you in two weeks with more questions. You both get excited about science changing. In your lives, you both talk about, it's so exciting, the advice has changed, science is changing, we've got new, we've got new news. To the rest of us who are not 
scientists. Science changing can be a bit nerve-wracking because why is what is good for me last week not good for me now? Why should we all be excited about science changing? Oh, Rayleigh, you and I are both nerds looking at each other just... You know, we should feel comforted by the fact that recommendations evolve with time. As we collect more data, as we see more things emerge, we evolve. We're not stuck in the past. You know, initially when this pandemic began, Rayleigh, you'll recall, we thought pregnant women were not at higher risk of COVID-19 and its complications. And we were kind of like, you know, pregnant women will be fine. Wow, with more data we have seen, no. Pregnant women are vulnerable to complications. The fetus, the unborn baby is vulnerable. And so we have evolved and it has, it, has, it has led to us actually going, we need to actually prioritise the vaccination of pregnant women. We actually need to talk about this preconception on top of the 16,000 other things we talk about. But we should be excited, Geordie, because it's, it, it shows you that we're not just stagnant, but we're taking the data, the real-time data collection and moving with it. Do you agree, Raylia? I do. And I also think that it's because we are bound by our Hippocratic Oath and we are honest. So if we see a risk that has not been seen in the past or if we see a benefit from past experience, we report it and we are transparent, you know. And and I think, you know, people worry about changing science, saying, oh, they got it wrong or, oh, you know, kind of um, I, they didn't tell us the whole truth. But I don't think that's that's really what is a fair observation of what's happened. What's happened is we've been thrown into a global pandemic mm which was unexpected. I I don't think any of us glancing back to what we were thinking in early 2019 saw this coming. And what we've had to do is put our thinking caps on and protect ourselves and our communities and our societies and our vulnerable people as best we can, as fast we can in a changing scene where we're gathering data on a daily basis. And I think it's actually... um, as Priya said, exciting and also comforting that recommendations change with data. It shows you we're watching carefully what's happening. Yes. And we're taking full account as a medical community and taking advice and also taking on board the experience of other countries. And Yes. With recommendations for pregnant women, one thing that really uh, was guiding us to be more conservative as, at the beginning was the fact that we didn't have a lot of COVID in Australia at the time. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's the same same principles are actually currently being debated for the vaccination of young children that, you know, we've, what we've got to weigh up is the risk of someone being infected and getting really sick or even dying from disease versus risks of the unknown um, and theoretical risks versus practical observations. And we're at a point in this pandemic now where COVID infection is much more likely than it's ever been before for Australian women. Yeah because our Delta strain is in our communities and it won't be controlled by lockdowns. We're buying time at the moment and we will inevitably open up and there will be COVID in the community and every single Australian will have a high chance of being exposed to COVID. So that's the reality we look forward to. And we know now from data from all over the world that unfortunately when a pregnant woman contracts COVID compared to a same age pregnant woman, her chance of getting severely unwell, hospitalised, in, intubated, ventilated is really, really high. Uh, we've seen caesarean section rates reported higher than 90% in 
in pregnant women in the second and third mm -hmm. trimester because doctors have had to deliver their babies early to save the mother's life. So just to be clear, you're talking about pregnant women matched with their non-pregnant counterparts. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So cesarean section rates in the general community, a high cesarean section rate would be considered about 30%. You know, that would be a high cesarean section rate. And obviously there's different populations who need cesareans more than others. Like there are some women who have a baby who's in distress during labour and has an emergency cesarean. There are some women who have a planned caesarean for different reasons, like they might have a low-lying placenta or their baby might have slow growth and there might be clinical concern about their baby not surviving the process of labour, um, which for the baby is is a real, I guess, a real workout for the baby. When, when a woman goes through labour, the baby has to, with every contraction, it would be the equivalent of a baby holding its breath. And why normal healthy babies can do that and they're designed to withstand that without compromise, babies who don't have such a good placenta um, might not be able to withstand that kind of um, pressure. Yep. And there are other reasons like a baby being in the wrong position or being breached or transverse, that kind of thing. Um, and some women have had multiple caesareans in the past and some women choose to have a caesarean because they decide that that's their preferred mode of birth and that's, in my opinion, also a valid reason. Mm -hmm. So, look, there's lots of reasons for caesareans but a 90% caesarean section rate infers that the woman's being delivered in an emergency context to save her life, not for the benefit of her baby um, in most of those situations. And I certainly wouldn't want any of my patients to find themselves in that situation. And unfortunately, around the world, we've seen mothers' lives um, who cannot be saved and babies yeah. being left without a mother. Um, and babies dying also from complications of extreme prematurity in the neonatal intensive care when they've been delivered early so that their mother can breathe. So we, we don't want to see that in Australia. We know that that is happening around the world. We've seen it around the world. We don't want our patients to learn the hard way that that is the reality of COVID. We can actually avoid it through vaccination. That's the gift that we've had by having closed international borders and buying time, as you say, Rayleigh, with lockdowns and things. We have this beautiful ability to go, wow, Australian pregnant women don't need to live this. We can prevent severe disease and hospitalisation and potentially death with vaccination. You know, that's an amazing thing. Amazing. It's amazing and it's a privilege that's still denied to other yes. countries. You know, we've seen at global summits recently, you know, African leaders standing up, you know, unfortunately reporting their lived experience that vaccines are not available to their populations. And unfortunately, you know, we're in this situation where you know we're we're trying to help other countries around the world by giving them vaccine supplies made in Australia, but you know we're unable to meet that need for other countries. And yet in our country, it's frightening that misinformation and fear might stop women at risk undertaking for themselves the privilege of protection. Yep. You've talked a lot about pregnancy and some of the risks that we've seen. Why are pregnant women more at risk to infections? What, what happens to their bodies while they're pregnant? So, look, there are huge physiological adaptations that happen in pregnancy. And even forget COVID, pregnancy is probably the most risky time of a woman's life physiologically. So we are at risk for many different reasons. But particularly for COVID and other infectious diseases, one problem is our immune system in order not to reject our fetus, where only 50% of the DNA is the same as ours and 50% is foreign, remembering our immune system is geared to fight things that are foreign. 
um, it's an amazing tolerance that our immune system allows us to have a baby where 50% of the DNA of the baby is not from ourselves. So, you know, our immune system does this by variety of mechanisms of tolerance and also immune compromise and immune suppression. So because we're weakening our immune system hormonally so that we don't reject our baby, we're also much more at risk of different infections during pregnancy. So you might be familiar, for example, with the um, bacteria listeria. You know, we don't think twice about going and eating soft cheese or, you know, kind of unpasteurized milk or salad from a salad bar, sushi, raw. We don't think twice about it. It's not going to kill us as a healthy person. But as a pregnant woman, you could get an overwhelming infection from those things. And, you know, I was telling Priya, actually, when I saw your photos on, um, on Instagram of you up in Darwin, a while ago that I did six months yes. in Darwin as an OND registrar in 2009 and, and that corresponded to the swine flu pandemic um, which I don't know is kind of a dim distant memory mm. for a lot of people but unfortunately we saw and we lost several pregnant women to the swine flu um, epidemic at that time because they were had overwhelming infection in the context of pregnancy and it, it will always scar my memory, you know, losing those women because generally in obstetrics and gynaecology in a first world country, it's a tragedy to lose a mother. It's very rare. Uh, we forget that in countries around the world, maternal mortality in in the absence of modern obstetrics is actually very high mm. and in the absence of modern medicine in general in terms of burdens of things like postpartum infection um, is very high and it's not a, not such a weird and wacky thing to lose a mum. And when we watch historical dramas and TV shows, you often see women dying in childbirth in the narrative, um, which was an accepted part of life at that time. And we are very lucky and very privileged in modern medical settings to avoid that most of the time. Um, but losing a mother is a catastrophe for a family, for herself, for her children, for her partner, um, for her community. And we don't want to lose any mothers where preventable deaths could be avoided with vaccination. Absolutely. And I think it's important to, I say to my patients when they ask me about Geordie's question, why? Why am I more vulnerable? There's the immune system, but also this really simple stuff like your lungs. You think about having been, I'm just like flashing back to my pregnancies. When the baby's huge and you, you literally go, I have no stomach or lungs left. And that's kind of true. Like your young lung volume does reduce slightly. All these things leave us more vulnerable. So, you know, you have to think about it. I say to my patients in the consulting room, we know when it comes to COVID-19, people over 65 are vulnerable. Immunocompromised people are vulnerable. And pregnant women are no different. You know, we've really got to reframe and reshift how we think about this because this is a really vulnerable group when it comes to COVID. That's right. And, you know, we also have some pretty good information about women who are trying to conceive and the fact that when you are actually trying to conceive, it is safe to be vaccinated. And so, you know, if you're worried about, for whatever reason, being vaccinated while you are pregnant, just get vaccinated when you start trying. Um, we don't think there's any bad time to be vaccinated in terms of trying to conceive or during pregnancy. Um, and we encourage women at all stages of trying to conceive and being pregnant to be vaccinated. Agree. Who decides that it's safe for pregnant women to cons to be vaccinated? Oh, so many people. Where to begin, Raylia? I think people forget how many people look at this, and it's and it should be comforting for people to know. You know, I'm, and Raylia will know more about this. But there are so many bodies that look at this, 
that look at safety data. You've got the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia who are kind of the body that even say, can it even come into the country? Then you've got people like Atagi, this group of really smart people who just literally live and breathe vaccines, who give recommendations. Then you've got RANSCOG, which is the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians, Gynecology. You've got body after body filled with people who are literally doing this day in, day out. What a privilege, you know, and, and as a GP, I'm guided by these bodies and it's a beautiful thing. But sorry, Aurelia, I got excited. You go. No, no, <laughs> that's perfect. And also just on a global level, I mean, you know, everybody we have in Australia is replicated overseas in countries that have, you know, data collection of lots and lots of data. And we also have, um, you know, things like the World Health Organization collating data from everywhere around the world. So, you know, and the beauty of the internet and modern communications is there's all of this data sharing. So, you know, no no country's, I guess, experience of COVID is in isolation. Yes. I think it's worth also the Australian bodies are really tough. Yes, in a good way, but I say it with a sigh. Yeah, it is because it's frustrating when you want to challenge them because they are so tough. So I think when a result is, when something is agreed by all of the Australian bodies, you can have absolute security in that decision. Yes, agree. In all the studies, in the clinical studies of the vaccine, pregnant women weren't included and neither were children. And now we're vaccinating over 12s in Australia and pregnant women, but no clinical studies was, were done on them. Why aren't these groups included in clinical studies? Mm, it's a very good question. That's ignited a lot of debate. I think Rayleigh would agree within the medical profession to say, actually, they should be. It's a historical thing, I believe, Raylia, to, to kind of not include particularly pregnant women who, who are deemed usually a vulnerable group. We don't want to cause any harm to that group, so we don't, don't normally include them. But the argument this time has been, my goodness, in a global pandemic where this information matters, people should be able to consent and people should be able to be included in these trials because the data is absolutely critical. I have a few patients who say to me, Priya, they weren't included in the clinical trials because people thought these things were going to be dangerous. They haven't done these, you know, vaccines in kids because they think they're going to be dangerous. And what I say to people is, no, incorrect, incorrect. And actually, to put people's minds at ease, these, these groups are now included in trials and they're currently actively recruiting children for, you know, Pfizer trials for vaccines. These groups are all being included. And I think this moment in history will be a defining one for clinical trials and for future vaccine development because we've realised, gosh, you can't do this again. It's ludicrous. Yeah, I think it's historical artefact, as Priya mentioned, and I think moving forward, you know, that's changing. Can the vaccine cause miscarriage? So, look, emphatically not. No. And, and we've seen actually retrospective data from lots and lots of places, but specifically the UK are very good at reporting this and also there was a great publication in JAMA recently reporting that actually in observational studies looking at people who got pregnant during the pandemic and were vaccinated there are actually fewer miscarriages in the vaccinated group than in the unvaccinated group the absolute reporting of that particular paper was that you know no difference was proven and therefore kind of no detrimental effects were observed but you could always argue that if, if you wanted to argue statistics, you could argue that it was actually less likely. So, look, I think I think there's no mechanism by which vaccination could feasibly cause miscarriage. Can we talk about where that myth and around fertility came from? Because it's important to say to people, where did this come from? This whole infertility 
and miscarriage stuff has absolutely, you know, taken a lot of my hours both in my clinical life and on social media trying to bust the myth. And, you know, what happened is when these vaccines came out, uh, these researchers wrote a letter. They hypothesised. They said, sorry, I'm waving my limbs around and knocking things. (laughs) But they said, you know, you're basically making a vaccine to target the spike protein on, on COVID. And that spike protein looks awfully similar to a protein that we've seen on a placenta. They were hypothesising and they said, look, if you're targeting the spike protein on COVID-19, you could target the placenta too and cause miscarriage and cause infertility. Now, what has come through seriously significant amounts of study and other people looking into this is that actually, no, those two proteins don't look similar at all. There's no confusion. That thing they've seen in the placenta, it's like putting a triangle and a square together. Yes, they've got some corners, but they're completely different shapes. There's no cross activity occurring there at all and in all the clinical trials they actually saw that there were the same numbers of pregnancies occurring in both groups so fertility wasn't affected so that's where it was born though that letter caused a significant amount of traction of obviously people then share it and 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 widely distribute it and once people see something they can't unsee it once the seed is planted it's very hard to get rid of it so I think we need to acknowledge where it came from, but it is a myth that has been debunked by far more significant and serious data like what Rayleigh is talking about, that miscarriage and infertility are not a factor when it comes to these vaccines at all. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I think of, you know, analogy that jumps to mind is think of all the poor women who were, you know, burnt and murdered for being witches. You know, somebody got it into their head that this person was a witch and you know, they convinced their whole community that that person was a witch and there was no convincing them that they weren't. Yes. We know with insight and, and you know, retrospection that that woman was not a witch. There might have been lots of different reasons for the events that were observed that made people at that time make that observation. But it's the same kind of thing that once people have this idea, um, whether it's true or not, ceases to matter. And unfortunately, social media is this incredible kind of vehicle yes. for spreading of misinformation is it's probably why you and I both are on social yes. media prayers to try and counter this misinformation and to try and obviously reach uh, you know kind of and and hopefully improve um, access to good information for a large number of people but you know by golly there are so many people on social media spreading such crap mm. excuse my French um, and it's it's dangerous it is yeah I could go on and on, but I'm going to leave it. You've nailed it. Nailed it, Raylia. Raylia, with uh, fertility treatment, some people are saying that there could be a decrease in the effectiveness of fertility treatment after getting the vaccine. Even how many times a day you do this, what are you seeing? So not at all, actually, at all. Not at all. And it's not just me. We haven't seen it in any community around the world. We haven't seen IVF success rates go down. We've seen them go up. Uh, and we see them go up for various different reasons. One is technology is constantly improving and we're working on that as practitioners. But certainly, you know, in my practice at Women's Health Melbourne, we've had more babies than ever during the pandemic and um, there's absolutely no concern of a drop in fertility rates because of vaccination. And what we've seen in IVF units around the world who've published studies is that women and men who are vaccinated in treatment, remembering that IVF is an amazing technology but not a silver bullet and some women and men are in treatment for serial months 
on end before they're ultimately successful. We haven't seen problems arising with deterioration of egg quality, of sperm quality, of embryo quality, uh, or pregnancy rates or miscarriage rates in an IVF context where this has been closely monitored. And that is incredibly reassuring because if it's not happening in the lab, it's not happening in the body. I say to my patients, I go, my friend Raylia, I actually use you, Raylia, I go, but she looks at embryos and eggs and sperm under a microscope and she's seeing nothing different in people who are vaccinated. And I think that's a really powerful thing to say to people. You know, we're not seeing anything at the really basic level, the beginning of life, we're seeing no change from vaccination. And you're speaking to someone who's actually looking at it. So a lot of my patients are like, oh, well, that makes me feel a bit better. And I'm like, well, so it should. It should. Another question I have for you, Priya, it's kind of a little devil's advocate question, um, because I've had patients ask me for vaccine exemptions. And it's easy as a gynecologist, I can say, oh, well, as a gynecologist, I can't grant you a vaccine exemption. I'm not allowed to. Um, You have to be either a GP or an infectious diseases specialist or a small number of other people who might qualify to do that. Um, But I also say to them, look, there are actually very few reasons that I would, if, if I was allowed to give you a vaccine exemption for whatever reason, there'd be very small real reasons to do that from a medical perspective. Um, how has your experience been of people asking for exemptions? This is really interesting. It's something that's being publicised within the general practice news and our literature that's going around because people are asking for exemptions. But as you say, there are very strict criteria as to what constitutes grounds for an exemption. And it is literally energy or anaphylaxis to a particular ingredient that is in the vaccine or you've had one of the really rare side effects previously with a dose, in which case you couldn't have, you know, another mRNA vaccine or AstraZeneca, um, for instance. But people are kind of asking, you know, oh, I get it, you know, my mum had a clot. Nope, that's not an exemption. I'm feeling a bit stressed. Nope, that's not an exemption. You'd be surprised at the things people are asking about to try and get an exemption, but it's very strict. At the end of the day, most of us and the vast majority are safe to get these vaccines and it's the right thing to do for you because it reduces your risk of COVID, your risk of severe disease. It's the right thing for the people around you. If you're less likely to get it, you're less likely to transmit it. Um, We protect the vulnerable. We protect our kids who at the moment are too young to be vaccinated if we shield and all vaccinate and reduce transmissibility. So there's lots of benefits and really an exemption is very rare, very, very rare. And I've said no at least five times in the last week. So where can our listeners get more information? They can follow you both on social media, which we'll link to, and you'll be doing another live soon probably about this. Yes. Um, So I would say to people there are so many places you can go for information, but please go to reputable places because there are places that are going to tell you a lot of nonsense and hogwash that's going to confuse you and breed uncertainty. And I would go for really solid stuff like health.gov.au, which is brilliant, MVEC, which is the Melbourne, Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, um, NICIRS, NCIRS, which is the National Centre for Immunisation Research Surveillance. Those guys have some brilliant, reputable resources, commonly asked questions, why the myths are busted. Um, and really, I say to my patients, just don't go on forums or Googling stuff. Go to those sites because a lot of people come to me, Rayleigh, and I don't know if you're seeing this, but they go... I've gone down rabbit holes and I'm scared. And I'm like, so don't even go to the little entrance to the little hole. Just stay right away from there and go to the reputable stuff. 
go see your GP. Yes. Yeah. We're there. Day in, day out, lockdown, no lockdown, we're there. And where can people go to get vaccinated? Again, you can come to your GP. You can now go to your pharmacies who've got um, AstraZeneca and a lot of them now have Pfizer, um, Moderna, sorry, the other mRNA vaccine as well. You have got state hubs. There are a lot of community centres that are vaccinating as well. You can go to a range of places and you should speak to your GP. If you don't know which one, what am I meant to be doing, GP or pharmacist, perfectly placed to talk to you but you've got options isn't that a beautiful thing in a pandemic to say you have got options on vaccines and where you can get it how privileged are we it's amazing and we're very lucky to be Australian we're very lucky to have these opportunities and hopefully um, you know we hope that in our community we can communicate these messages effectively so that at the end of this pandemic, we can celebrate that we've had one of the best outcomes yes. in the world in our country. We have the opportunity to do that moving forward um, and everyone has their opportunity to play a role in a happy ending for this pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us, Priya. Thank you, guys. I've loved it as always. I'm sorry that I nerded out massively, but thank you. <laughs> to support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Mm-hmm.